Growing up, my grandma would watch my sister and I during the day when my parents worked. And one of the things I remember most is how she used to watch these VHS tapes of her favorite TV series called Journey to the West. There's a scene in the 1986 version in Mandarin about Su Wukong, the Monkey King, who is also called Xin Yi Hong in Cantonese. The episode is about his humble beginnings, and my sister and I always like to reenact this one scene. He ends up in a food establishment, but because he is a monkey, he doesn't know much of the world of man. He copies an order of noodles from another customer. Not knowing how to use chopsticks to eat, he proceeds to pull the noodles way up high, standing on the stool and then onto the table so he could finally see the end. He abandons the chopsticks and starts pulling the noodles into his mouth. Being impressionable and young, my sister and I mimicked the scene and also pulled our noodles as high as we could. As a kid, I don't remember there being a ton of characters, shows, or movies that featured people like me. There were martial arts movies with Bruce Lee and Jet Li, which I watched so many times. I was constantly practicing my kung fu around the house. Sometimes I pretended I had a staff. I wanted to be like the monks I saw in those movies. Other than kung fu movies, there weren't many Asian characters that I could relate to at a young age. I remember being so excited when Disney's Mulan came out. It was the first time I saw someone, a character, based off of someone like me. Things are starting to change. At this year's Oscars, Everything Everywhere All at Once won the award for Best Picture. Star Michelle Yeoh won for Best Actress, the first person of Asian heritage to receive the award. Ki Hui Kwan won for the Best Supporting Actor. It was the first major Hollywood project he had done since the Goonies in 1985. While things seem to be looking up, Ryan Alexander Holmes says the media and Hollywood still has work to do to bring in more types of stories. It might be easier than it was before, but that's also subjective too, because if you're trying to get a show made and there's literally no one that looks like you on the executive level that's gonna green light it, that's kind of problematic and makes it kind of hard to tell your story. Ryan is an actor and content creator who is Black and Chinese. He explores identity and culture in his videos that he posts on social media. Ryan joins the show to talk about what he's learned about himself and his culture. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you could kind of introduce yourself, kind of like, your title and what you're about for people that don't know who you are, that'd be great. Ryan Alexander Holmes, I'm an actor, content creator, speaker, producer, based in Los Angeles. I'm black and Chinese, and uh, I won't shut up about it. Um, and a lot of my content and a lot of the stuff that I create is sort of centered around culture and identity. And yeah, I talk about being black and I, I talk about being Chinese and I, I'd like to say that I'm 100% both because it's the way that I carry myself. Um, but what I've really learned along my journey of, of sharing my story and my message is that it's universal, that we're all dealing with things. We're all dealing with identity and culture in this melting pot that is America and the world and trying to figure out who we are, right? These are all things that make you who you are, so why not embrace them to the fullest? So that's sort of my message in everything that I do creatively. Yeah, I, 
I agree. Um, there's so many nuances to how life is, and I feel like putting people into labels sometimes hinders, you know, the creation of something that's unique and new that can be applicable to everyone. So what are your thoughts on entertainment and media now versus when you were younger as like someone with being black and Chinese? Well, we've seen like dramatic improvements in like both. So it's gotten a lot better, a lot better representation, but it's not, it's still like, just because it's gotten better doesn't mean that like we've arrived. We, there's still a lot more work to do. And there's a lot of inaccuracies and misrepresentation that still does exist. It's like something that I dreamed of having as a kid because I didn't have it. I didn't have a lot of people that look like me on TV doing things that I wanted to do or embracing things that I wanted to embrace, right? Like a lot of drug dealers, a lot of uh, gang members, and that was like sort of hyped on the black side, right? And then on the Asian side, nothing, basically, you know? I rewatched Rush Hour and... Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx like 20 million times because that's like what I had. That's also not to say that we didn't have like great black representation like Moesha and Living Single and Different World. Like we had so many, but we've seen also those disappear too, right? We still got Black Panther. We still got a lot of like huge black representation and African representation too, specifically. But we've also seen sort of parts of our culture sort of disappear, like the black sitcom, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But to answer your question, <laughs> um, now that I'm in it as an actor and a creative, I get to see it from the insider's point of view. And it's still, we still have to battle with people that don't look like us in order to tell the stories that we want to tell. Yeah, it might be easier than it was before, but that's also subjective too, because if you're trying to get a show made and there's literally no one that looks like you on the executive level that's going to green light it, that's kind of problematic and makes it kind of hard to tell your story because you're not surrounded by people who actually understand you and see your story as valuable and see your story as relatable. Because in their mind, they're like, hmm, would middle America want to see this? So look, it's gotten better, but I don't want to overshadow the fact that it's still we still have a lot of work to do by saying it's gotten better yeah I, I completely agreed just because I feel like even when I was younger like you know looking for media for someone that looked like me I was like okay what do I get to choose from Bruce Lee Jet Li like and these are all wonderful actors but it's they're typecasted into like these martial art films even like Asian women there were very very few and it's all kind of crazy like you know, everyone's like, oh, well, you guys have, like, Joy Luck Club. I'm like, you can't reference Joy Luck Club for everything. For like, like, one movie. Literally one. <laughs> what? What? That's It's kind of crazy. It's insane when people use the only movie that, like, we had forever as, like, what, you got this? But you had that. Exactly. So while talking about growing up, um, are you from L.A.? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the SGV, which is the San Gabriel Valley, which is basically China in America. <laughs> it's like all Chinese people, um, Chinese businesses, Chinese restaurants. Uh, it's a Chinese community. But I, I moved there from Ladera Heights when I was five. So I grew up in like basically like black sort of Beverly Hills, affluent black neighborhood to a 
Chinese neighborhoods, Chinese community, both in LA. And so I got to experience both of those worlds. And then as I was also in San Gabriel Valley, uh, I ran for a black track club, which was like a huge part of my life because I actually ran track my whole life, went to, was an All-American, went to college on scholarship, went to Berkeley on scholarship to run track, ran there for for all the time, all the years I was there. And so I got to experience like both my cultures kind of fully, which was like a blessing. And also like we're in LA, so there's, my friend group was so diverse. I got to experience all these different cultures and all these different people. So yeah, if I had to tell you where I was born and raised, I would say Los Angeles, but it's like, it's kind of all of Los Angeles, but my home base was the SGV, specifically Pasadena, San Marino, uh, South Pasadena, Monterey Park, Alhambra area. Yeah. You know Mandarin. Uh, did you learn that in school? Because I think I saw like um, in some of your videos that you mentioned that you went to Chinese school with your brother. Yeah, I did. I went to Chinese school. Uh, my grandma does not really speak English. Um, so I had to speak to her in Chinese. So that's also how I, I mean, that's how I continue to learn today because I have to communicate with her in Chinese. And then, you know, I studied in Chinese school when I was a kid. And then both me and my brother uh, studied Mandarin in college. I studied abroad in Shanghai. What's funny is like, I have a Shanghai, Taiwanese, Beijing, American accent when I speak Chinese. And it just switches like I'm talking to a person from Beijing, like the R's start to come out. And then when I'm talking in Taiwanese, like instead of sure, I'll say it's like the accent will just organically start to happen, you know? So to answer your question, yeah, that's like I speak Mandarin, but it's like all over the place sometimes. And then your life in uh, Shanghai, do you have like a, maybe a particular experience you would like to share about being there? About Shanghai? About Shanghai or China in general? Yeah, I loved it. I It wasn't what I expected it to be, but it was also more than I expected it to be. And like I had to get over the culture shock of arriving in that country because someone put it perfectly. They said they have like Eastern software, but Western hardware. And they're always trying, the hardware and the software are always trying to sort of compete with each other and sort of find symbiosis in mainland China. And I found that to be so true because it's just like, they only opened up to the rest of the world in like the 80s. So a lot, like a lot of it is just sort of trying to catch up or sort of adapt to this new sort of capitalist system that they've implemented that's still communism. And then you get like people from the countryside coming into the cities and they're just, they're the most fun people to interact with because they have never seen anybody that looks different than a Chinese person. So like, to me, they're like, what are you? Like looking at me like I'm an alien and trying to take pictures of me and hold my hand. And it never felt like they were doing it in a derogatory way. It was just like, they're just in wonder of something they'd never seen before, you know? And I think sometimes China can get a bad rap in terms of like how anti-black it is, but like the anti-blackness in China is nothing compared to the anti-blackness in America that I've experienced, right? Because there's literally history and legislation embedded in our in America that is anti-black. In China, they don't have that history. So I think a lot of it is like 
you know, sometimes it's xenophobia because there's like a large African community in China. But a lot of it is just like they're just oblivious and like really in wonder. And that's why they stare. They're not staring at you in a derogatory way. They're staring because like they really have never seen something like you before or like me before. So that's what I experienced. I also experienced like a connection with my culture that in, in a way that I never experienced before. Obviously, like I look, they, they don't look at me and think that I'm one of them. But then like speaking to them in the language and like speaking to and, and also walking the same streets that my grandma walked because she's from Shanghai just put a lot of things into perspective for me and my family and my culture. Like because it's different when you're actually like breathing the same air that like your ancestors breathed, you know, and walking amongst like these people that you actually do share blood with and where you came from, right? Like my grandma and my mom are immigrants, you know? So it's interesting to go back to where they came from and spend time there, only understanding them in an American context. So I thought that was powerful too. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective because I, the hardware example is something I never really thought about, but that, that makes sense. Yeah. And then um, going back to some more of your content videos, like you have like dim sum with your popo. Your popo is your grandmother from your mother's side. I love those videos. They're so wholesome. <laughs> How does she feel about like you recording her for those? <laughs> She's so into it. She's so into it. She's never, she's never like, get that camera off me. She's just like, it's like it's not there. She just yeah. talks normal. <laughs> I think one of the other fun videos was like, you're like, I'm going to help my grandma in the kitchen. And you like come over to stir something with chopsticks. And she's <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, don't touch that. <laughs> yeah. So funny. She handed it to me too. She's like, oh, okay. And then she immediately took it away from me. It's fun to kind of get a glimpse of your life and your multicultural family and seeing how it blends so beautifully. Yeah, I think it's just offering like another version, like another interpretation of like how this is supposed to look. Because I think that like in America, especially, we think that like these two cultures don't belong together and don't get along with each other. We're like, that's just not reality. It's a divisive ideology that has been thrust and forced upon us, you know, in a country that like, first of all, force, forcibly brought my black ancestors here and then sort of wanted my Chinese ancestors here for labor to build their things. But then all of a sudden, like, after they're done building the things, oh, we don't want you anymore. We're not grateful for what you did for us. We want you to like be subhuman citizens, just like black people, right? And then understanding that if these two cultures understood how the system was, was pushing down on them in the same way, they would unite together and become a bigger force than the, than the power that was pressing down on them. The system had to find a way to, to make sure that they didn't unite, right? So that's what we're up against. And so I'm just offering another perspective because like literally it's my family. I don't have to try you know, and it's also in, inside of me, I'm both, right? So my literal existence is proof that this animosity is not real. It's created, it's manufactured. And I'm bringing up a slightly touchy subject um, in the sense that because you are both 
and culturally, language-wise, there is a phrase that a lot of people that you also brought up in a video, but I'm going to bring it up. The words for that in Mandarin are controversial. It's very similar to a word in the Black community. Yeah. Um, would you care to explain? It's funny. It's actually funny to me because it's like, it's a, it's such a beautiful opportunity to bridge, but it turns into like a very divisive conversation where it's just like, yo, this is just a word that like has nothing to do with that other word. And it's fine. It's just it's words sound like things in other languages. And that's totally fine. Like that is an opportunity to learn. And so the way that I show it is like how ridiculous it is and how funny it can be that this misinterpretation can happen. Because sometimes it turns into like Chinese people are racist. Chinese people are racist because they're speaking their language. You know what I mean? No, they're not. Like, and they should be able to say that word. We should also be able to communicate with each other to know that that's not what they're saying, right? But also, like, I've been on the receiving end of Asian people calling me or Chinese people calling me the actual N-word. That's not right either. And, and what's, what's also funny about it and ironic about it is that they're not saying it to me. In a, they weren't saying it to me in a derogatory way. They were saying it to me in sort of like a brotherly way. And I'm like, um, I don't think that you shouldn't do that. I don't like it when you do that. You know what I mean? But like, but, but you're Chinese and I'm Chinese and you're also black. So like, I should be able to say it. It's like, uh, the math ain't mathin' on that, buddy. You know what I mean? So there are all these sort of miscommunications, misinterpretations. And I think what's necessary is a conversation. So if I can create a piece of content that can create a conversation that's not from a place of um, maliciousness or animosity or divisiveness, then I'm going to do that, you know, to show sort of the irony of the situation so that people can, first of all, people can laugh about it. And then that opens and lets their guard down so that they can have a conversation about it. So what kind of conversations have you had with your family um, around identity growing up? I mean, my family and my parents were always very much adamant that, like, I carried myself in a way that was in, accord in accordance to how I felt about myself without other people's opinions, right? So uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm doing what I do now and the way that I'm doing it, because without my parents sort of raising me the way they did, this wouldn't be possible. A lot of the identity conversations were, how do you feel about yourself? You're talking about what Billy said about you or, you know, what Catherine said about you and how you should act, but how do you feel like you should act? You need to find that for your own self. And like people, their ideas about how you should act because you're black or because you're Chinese have nothing to do with you. So you go off on your own and don't be afraid to be on your own and figure out your own opinions about yourself and the way that you want to carry yourself right? And be unique and don't be afraid to be different or to stand alone. And so like, I don't know, a lot of my childhood was like figuring out who I was sometimes by myself and not really feeling like I had like really close friends because I wanted to figure that out on my own. And a lot of times, like when you're a kid, people try to categorize you. Other kids try to categorize you because it's all about social hierarchy when you're a kid, being popular, you know? And I never really fit in with that paradigm, right? When I was popular, it was because of like, you know, I was good at sports or something. 
you know, but like most of the time I was in like the library and reading, I was very much a nerd, but I think playing sports sort of gave me a social life that I wouldn't have had if I, if I uh, didn't play it. Okay. And then how do you feel your stories fit into the experiences of like the overall American story? I think it's quintessentially American. And I think that the way that we're taught, especially the way that I was taught, like growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, like learning history and learning like from that educational curriculum at the time, they didn't teach us anything really about African-American history in depth. They didn't teach us any Asian-American or Asian history, right? So then what are you learning? If the emphasis is on non-people of color and you don't even see yourself in what you're studying in history in your own country, then you can think that your narrative is not American. When really, like, this country was founded on immigrants. And without immigrants and without Black people, without the people who were literally enslaved to build the this country and the in the economic success and wealth that we have is all tied to immigrants and to enslaved labor. That is both my ancestors, right? The success of America, what it is, the powerhouse that it is today, would not even be close to what it is without us, right? So why the hell do we think our narratives are not important and, and not impactful and also not American. As a public-facing figure, I assume you get a lot of feedback. How do you deal with like the positive and negative, I assume, comments that you get? Um, staying grounded, like with the people that I love and my friends and my family, right? So that I don't get lost in sort of the negative things that are said about me or to me in my comments or in my DMs. And also having compassion for those people who are lashing out at me by understanding like that's pain that they're projecting onto me, internal pain, right? And also I cannot react to that with my own projection of the pain that they've projected onto me. Like I can't let their projected pain enter me and then project it onto them. I'm continuing the cycle, right? So honestly, it took me a long time time to get there but I, I thank those people not to them I'm not like thank you for calling me the n-word <laughs> you know I'm, I thank them internally because you're testing me and making me understand that like I cannot go to that place anymore there's too much to lose and I cannot sacrifice my my mental health by going down that path with you. And also I can have compassion for you because you may not have had the resources that I've had in order to arrive to this place, right? So if I do respond, which I try not to, <laughs> it'll, I'll try to make it with love. But most of the time I just don't respond and, and, and I focus my time on other things that are more fruitful for my energy, you know, and that feed me more down the path that I need to go to. Because if you start focusing on the neg negative things that are said about you, that can become your identity, right? And you can be sucked into that negative feedback loop of trying to prove your worth to these people who already don't see eye to eye with you. Why not take that energy, try to understand where they're coming from, and then sort of like try to create content that sort of reaches those people in a non-threatening and non-malicious, non-retributive way. 
Like you're not trying to get revenge. I, I just made up a word. But in a non-vengeful way. Hmm, someone said this negative thing about me. I wonder where that comes from. Let me talk about where it came from and how that, where I think it might have come from and how I can relate to that and how I've said something negative to somebody once and how I can distill that moment and understand where that's coming from and then have compassion with it. And also make it funny because that's just what I do. So you're in media and acting. Have you seen changes in the industry like involving these type of themes? Yeah, I think, yeah. I really enjoyed everything, everywhere, all at once because it was such a groundbreaking film because it didn't rely on Asian stereotypes. They were just like being who they were. And then also it was like this crazy sci-fi, futuristic, surrealist, almost like a play, but talked about all these themes in a way that have never been talked about before and also didn't make anyone an enemy. Like sometimes it's like, the, oh, the older generation is the enemy or the younger generation is lazy. They didn't do that. They really sort of empathize with each generation. There was the daughter's generation, then there was the mother, and then there was the grandfather, right? So you had all those. And, and, and in, in an Asian household, those are so important, right? But I think also in Asian culture, we don't really communicate our feelings and share our stories. And so in this, you see the differences in the priorities of all these generations, but then by the end of the movie, you sort of empathize with each generation and understand where they're coming from and, and understand that the miscommunications were a lack of connection and trying to understand the context of what where the generation was coming from. And at the end of the day, it's all love because all the actions that are driven by that generation are love and wanting to impart wisdom for the next generation so that it's better. Sometimes the way that it's important is kind of toxic, right? But if you can understand where it's coming from, then it's not so toxic. And then you can talk about like, you can have a conversation about like, hey, you're saying this to me and I understand actually where you're coming from. So let me talk to you from that place and not attack you and say that you're wrong. Let's have a communion with each other. So I think that it was very cathartic to watch that movie because it's like, oh no, yeah, my parents love me. My grandparents love me. They just have different opinions and that's fine. We can agree to, to uh, understand where we're both coming from, even if we don't agree on the way that we want to live our lives or get to that place that you want to get me to, right? But you can, I can tell you why I want to go to that place, why I want to be an artist, how that is fulfilling to me and how it actually can bring honor to the family, <laughs> you know? Have you gotten much pushback choosing to be an artist? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the goal for me was always, or the, the path that my family wanted me to do was be a businessman and be the businessman of the family. And ironically, like I'm doing that now, but it's like through the way that I want to do it, through art and through uh, the creative processes that, that I use in order to express myself. And I think... It was very hard when I had graduated from college and I wasn't working or I didn't want to work in finance. And I didn't really talk to my parents for a little while. And it wasn't like they excommunicated me and it wasn't like I'm, I'm not messing with them anymore. Like I've excommunicated myself. It was just like, oh, I need, to, I need this time, this year to figure out what I want to do and who I am. 
because I think another force in my life, my brother was like, look, I know you're not happy and I know you don't want to do this business thing. And and I know you don't want to work in finance. So like, stop pretending, figure out what you want to do. It's like, yeah, I know. But like, I don't know, man. Like, I I think I have to do this because like, what else am I going to do? I'm going to be an actor. That's so stupid. Doesn't it make sense? Like everyone wants to be an actor and everyone fails. It's like, so did you try? Because I know damn well you don't want to do that. So like, why wouldn't you try to do something that you actually would be passionate about? So a lot of it is just like, a lot of life is just taking the leap in a direction that scares the hell out of you and a direction that like your heart wants you to go in. But everything in the world, in your world, like the conditioning, the way that you're raised, your parents telling you how you should live your life, your grandparents, like your family values, Everything's saying no, but your heart is saying yes. And sometimes you just have to let yourself actually just try. Do you feel like your relationships with your family has changed going this route? Are you closer now that you started creating like content like this with the videos with them and having them involved in your decision to go into acting? Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Like, just because if I pursued a, a Korean business... That wouldn't mean that I wouldn't be closer with my family. It's just a different way of being close, I feel like. I don't know what that route would have been. That just wasn't my path. But I will say I'm very close with my family in a way that I haven't been before because I'm investigating sort of my culture and my identity, my roots. And uh, obviously that that incorporates like my fa- my parents' story and my grandparents and all my individual family members' stories. So yeah, I feel like I'm very close in a way that I never have been before. But I wouldn't go into compare it to like, had I gone in business, would I, would I have been close? No, yes, no, I might have been closer. I might have been closer in a different way. Who knows? But this is the path that I'm on, and it's very fulfilling. And um, it's, it's mind-boggling because, like, I'm doing what I want to do, which was insane because you just don't – growing up, I didn't think that I could do what I want to do and make money after, you know, my MBA career. <laughs> or my MBA hopes were shattered and my Olympic track hopes were shattered. I'm like, okay, I guess I have to do what I don't want to do now, you know, and just deal with that. But now I'm like doing exactly what I want to do. And I'm sort of like, I'm making it. And it, and, it, and I still haven't gotten used to that feeling of like doing what I want to do and actually making a living. I, I, I've been actively making a living out of it it doesn't feel real. <laughs> and I'm not really necessarily relying on somebody else to tell me what to do or, you know, on a paycheck from one individual company where I have to like make sure I act in accordance to their mission statement and their values in order to receive my paycheck, you know? So it's scary, but also very fulfilling. How important is it to you to use humor when you talk about the content that you create? I think it's everything because it, it, lowers people's guards down to to actually listen to a topic right because we we live in especially in America at this time in such a such a divided divisive polarized sort of nation in terms of like our beliefs which are, like a lot aren't even like nuanced at all like someone will say something and they'll be like well I don't I don't agree with anything that that person has to say now about anything because they took a a side on some certain topic. And I think that's so, so 
horrible because you miss out on so much that that human being has to offer, right? And you you don't really allow that human being to be a human. You sort of compartmentalize them into an evil being that's actually not human, so you don't treat them as a human. And then you actually start to be uh, act in a way that is inhuman. And honestly, that completely deads any kind of connection that you can have with that person. Because at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all have families and we all love, you know, our mothers and our fathers and our brothers, sisters, daughters. Like that's something that we can connect on. You know what I mean? And doing activities and, and culture and food, right? Like we can relate to each other on all of that. That was my conversation with Ryan Alexander Holmes, actor and content creator based in Los Angeles. You can see him on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, or maybe on TV. He has a lot of very fun and cute videos with his grandma and are definitely worth checking out. For more information on this episode and the series, head to pbsreno.org slash Refugee's Daughter. And a special thank you to Ryan for joining the show. Subscribe to Refugee's Daughter wherever you listen to podcasts and give the show a rating and review. I'm Christina Lee, and thanks for listening. This episode was written by Christina Lee with production help from Divergent Point Media. Refugee's Daughter is a presentation of PBS Reno.